There are two feedback loops at the heart of BioLite, whose CEO, Jonathan Cedar, is today's guest. The first is between campers, who use BioLite's signature wood-burning, electricity-generating stoves and their trips away from it all, and people in developing nations, who find the stoves equally useful, but for very different reasons. Cedar tells us about realizing their camp stove could do some good, and what they've learned from both groups of people. Then you've got the second feedback loop, which is between heat and electricity. BioLite stoves are pretty clever little pieces of technology. They use heat from the fire to generate electricity, and then use electricity to run a fan that fuels the fire. In the meantime, you use the excess to charge your devices. Cedar tells us how it works, and then me and Maculay take a trip to the BioLite Labs in Brooklyn to talk to the folks who are burning wood 24-7 to make sure the stoves hold up. I'm Kevin Deepsick, and this is How Your World Works. Um, well, today co-hosting with me is Matt Goulet, he's our markets editor. He's kind of the gear guy around here. And our guest today is Jonathan Cedar from BioLite. Jonathan, thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me. So we want to talk a little bit about how you guys develop your products. And uh, Matt, do you want to Yeah, yeah, let's away? get into it. Yeah, so Jonathan, I mean, let's start bare bones and, and tell people like who don't know what BioLite is and what you guys do and, and what you make. Sure. Broadly, we serve two groups of customers. We say customers who go off the grid by choice, either for camping or hunting or just getting away. Um, and then we also serve customers who live off the grid by circumstances, mostly in uh, developing countries like India and uh, parts of sub-Saharan Africa. BioLite develops products through a process we call parallel innovation, where we pick um, energy problems that have the potential for massive impact in emerging markets. So um, uh, in, in emerging markets, about half the population um, cooks on solid fuel, so essentially they cook over campfires either inside their home or just adjacent to their home. The emissions, uh, the smoke essentially from these fires kills about 4 million people each year, which is more than HIV, TB, and malaria combined. Wow. And to date, there really haven't been good technologies, right? So the company started uh, initially working on wood-burning stoves that can burn wood as cleanly as gas, and so you can be off the grid and cook cleanly with this abundant renewable resource. Um, and in order to cook as clean as gas, you need fans that can improve combustion. And so in 2006, when we started working on this, the question for us was, well, how do you drive these fans in a wood stove that can live entirely separate from batteries and gas fuels? And we started looking at a technology called thermoelectrics, which are essentially um, they're like solar panels for heat instead of light. And so we could borrow some of the thermal energy from the fire to generate electricity and drive these fans. And all of a sudden, we kind of had this self-sustaining wood gasifying <laughs> system. And what was really neat was we were able to generate not just enough electricity to drive these clean combustion processes, but also to charge mobile phones um, or LED lights. Everything kind of feeds back in on itself. Did you have a background such that you sort of knew this process could be improved upon? Or did you start from like a problem and then found this as a solution? Um, no, honestly, we started... Um, so my background, I, I studied engineering in college and um, uh, shortly after school went to work for a consumer product development firm called Smart Design. We um, did engineering and design and brand development for large brands. Um, you know, we worked for Hewlett Packard. We designed the first... Um, if you guys remember the flip video cameras, mm -hmm. um, BioLite started as a night and weekend curiosity. Alec, my co-founder, had um, been given a, a present from his brother, which was a, a small stove called a Sierra Zip Stove. And it was essentially a very rudimentary version of what we went on to build, where it was like a, you know, 
uh, a soup can with a couple of holes in it and right. a battery-powered fan on the bottom. And it wasn't incredibly clean, but it was it was really clear how magically different, you know, just a little bit of forced air in a fire is from a mm-hmm. from a totally unassisted open fire. Mm-hmm. And and that was really what sparked our curiosity. And we said, okay, well, let's go and learn about these processes. And so, um, you know, turns out that this is a sort of rudimentary version of what's called a wood gasification process. And um, and, and the way you drive these processes is by heating solids to the point that they vaporize and then mixing them with oxygen in these more controlled environments. Hmm. And in order to do that, you needed electricity. And we started to you know, say, OK, well, how else could we do this? Could we do it with a solar panel? Could we do it with a wind-up motor? And um, through researching that, came upon thermoelectrics. And so it was really kind of, it, it, was, it was honestly kind of a technical curiosity, one that resonated with us as, as campers. Um, but that slowly over time revealed a much broader opportunity. So we started by working on the camp stove and about two years into the project took our funny little prototype to a conference um, in Seattle that we thought was just about advanced wood combustion and we walk in <laughs> and it turns out everyone's talking about the fact that four million people are dying from smoke in developing countries, um, which was totally news to us. Like hmm. it just, we never spent the time to think about how people were cooking. Yeah, we just assumed right. they cooked like we cooked. Right. And, um, and at the same time, our funny little prototype uh, won the cleanest stove uh, they'd had ever seen in their stove contest, um, and it was the only one that wasn't plugged into a wall outlet to achieve nearly those levels of emissions. Wow. And so, um, honestly, we really were serendipitously introduced to you know what has become the the mission for our business, and it was it was because of that big opportunity to to hopefully have an impact that um, we decided to quit our day jobs and start BioLite. That's pretty impressive. Really. Yeah. So like in terms of the, the camp stove, uh, sort of what's the output? Like what, what do you get out of it in terms of you know, the power and, and the, the energy and the heat and everything? Sure. So the camp stove, um, maybe just for, for listeners I can describe it. So it's, it's yeah. essentially um, uh, a two-walled metal can that's the size of a coffee can. Um, that has an orange plastic box on the side of it that we call the power module. And inside of the power module is a thermoelectric generator that siphons heat from the wood fire that's taking place inside of the metal cylinder and converts that to electricity. That electricity powers a fan that both improves combustion as well as cools the thermoelectric. And the excess electricity comes out through a USB port so you can charge a phone or a light. The heat from the fire is somewhere, uh, it it can vary between sort of two and 5,000 watts thermal. Um, So, you know, that's enough to boil a liter of water in four minutes or so with a decent pot. Um, I did that. We did that. It was (laughs) cool. Yeah, we just got some like, because we were just screwing around with it on uh, this weekend. And, you know, I just kind of threw like a, almost like a jet boil type pot on there, like one of their big ones, though. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, it got roaring like quick. Like, I was impressed. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, we don't think of sticks as a as a modern fuel, <laughs> yeah. right? But yeah. um, there's a lot of energy in sticks, and if you use it properly, it can be just as productive and easy to use as as gas. Yeah. Um, and so, so then the extra electricity from um, the thermoelectric generator. So we send about a hundred watts thermal through the electric uh, thermoelectric generator. Thermoelectric generators are not super efficient. And a thermoelectric generator converts about 5% of the thermal energy that passes through it into electricity. Hmm. Um, and so the, the generator can produce up to about 5 watts in, with a strong fire. 
and then we send uh, water to that to the fan, and you get two or three watts out the USB port. Was so it hard to find um, electronic components that could handle being right next to a roaring fire? Is that is that easier <laughs> than I think it is? Um, no, we spend a lot of time uh, doing thermal engineering. Um, I came into this business with a little bit of, of thermodynamics background from college, um, but we very quickly realized we needed uh, more combustion and thermal expertise and went out and hired um, two combustion engineers, one of whom is literally a rocket scientist who came from a company called Rocketdyne that helped mm-hmm. build the <laughs> space shuttle engines. And another one came out of a solid fuels combustion PhD program at Penn State. Yeah, yeah. Matt and I actually got to go to your offices. Yeah, I'm Ryan Gist. Uh, I lead the combustion team here and research for our emerging markets products. And if we step over here into the burn lab, I can show you what we're up to. We're doing 24-hour burn testing. So whereas maybe a camping product is used infrequently and focuses on lightweight and portability, um, the stoves in particular and the other products we make for the developing markets are much more of an appliance, much more built in, and they, they're used really heavily every day. Um, and so go through the, the normal product development cycle, and then towards the, the end of that development cycle, it's really important that we put the product through its paces and do that in the most realistic fashion that we can. Um, we've learned a ton by doing field testing in, in India and Africa, um, but it's really hard for us to get valuable technical engineering feedback because it's so remote and it's so difficult to really you know, observe carefully and well instrument the products when they're being used uh, in the fashion that they are out in those regions. And so we've replicated here basically our version of a kitchen in sub-Saharan Africa or India, and we're exposing the stoves to the kind of hard usage that they'd see in real life. We're cooking you know, with real fuel in a fashion that's similar to the way they cook and boiling water to simulate the cooking and doing that 24-7. We've got um, burners that we've hired in uh, to do the burning and then we have engineers who oversight and actually take turns spending the night in the office so that they can kind of debug and diagnose stuff if anything goes wrong. And um, it's been really great because we, we caught some sort of early failure modes as we went into this process and things that we weren't able to replicate another testing in the lab we were able to find here. And since we've addressed those things and got rid of those failure modes, these stoves have been burning strong for over a thousand hours and we hope they're gonna continue to do so for hundreds of more, so. Yeah, so we've got, I mean, what do we got? Three stoves right now that are sort of the the basic home stove. And then on them are just like charred pots. And then that's water in there that's just boiling away. And you're constantly adding water to that to? Constantly adding water. We actually do that for for a couple of different reasons. The the water, as I said, kind of simulates food and and the cooking experience. But it's also important because we're pulling all this heat up through our ventilation system and and dumping it outside. If, If we weren't boiling the water, we'd be putting a lot more heat into the, the duct and over-temping some of our equipment upstairs, including the big industrial blower that, that kind of pulls all this stuff out. Fan blades or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, crazy. So like, when you say 1,000 hours, I'm just trying to do the math. Do you know, like how many days that is at this point? Is it? Yeah, I mean, that's that's over a year of usage and more like one and a half to two years of usage wow. for, for a typical person. And you know, we expect our stoves to be able to last much longer than that, three years or four or five years, yeah. ideally. It smells great in here. Do yeah. you know? Uh, <laughs> do you know kind of what this is that you're burning? Yeah, it's quality oak. We're, we got split <laughs> split white oak and red oak, and um, this is actually, if you look at it, it looks like you're 
your kind of camp bundle, but we yeah. we ask that it's split twice, which is a little more consistent with the, the kind of wood that people use in country. It's, if you were to just shove big logs in here, it'd be a little harder to yeah. do. I was actually going to ask where, because we're in, I guess we haven't said yet, but we're in Brooklyn, in the heart of Brooklyn. Where do you actually get the wood from? Because it does look like I was camping two weekends ago in Maine, and it looks like the wood I bought there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, a, it's the same type of supplier, the guys that'll sell cordwood to the grocery stores and have oh, them yeah. stacked up out in front um, by the cord. So how do you know, how will you know when it's time to retire these three stoves that are being tested right now? Uh, well, we, we do have sort of a, a limited test program plan, just given that, that we do have to spend overnights here and everybody pitches in their personal time to, to oversee it. So we've, as I said, we've, we've already got about 1,200 hours on the majority of the components. Once all the components of the stove have seen over a thousand hours, including the software um, and the electronics tweaks, then, then we'll retire this test program. But we're doing a sister program in India, uh, actually in, in East India, in Orissa. They're doing the same thing. Um, it's a little bit more affordable to do there. We can get labor more readily available. And so we're probably gonna continue that, that program indefinitely. like the less technical side of the lab. This is what we call hood two. Under hood one over here, we have our more fully instrumented lab. So you've got emissions like CO2 and CO and particulate smoke, and especially the CO and the particulate smoke are, are damaging to the environment and to human health into our air pollution. And, and so our stove, because we've got a fan, we're able to force the air into the, the right parts of the, the combustion region to really fully react to all those fuels, we can get rid of 90% of the smoke. Awesome. And we've, we've done that development work and we've done that validation under this hood here where we can measure you know, not only all the temperatures and pressures in the stove, but also those emissions that come out. And so we've got two different gas analyzers up here that are doing redundant measurements on, on again, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, um, we're doing particulate smoke through a couple of different methods, both um, gravimetric, which is just pulling a sample through a filter and seeing how much you know, smoke particles build up on the filter, and also through a really cool uh, optically-based measurement where you're shooting a laser into the stream, and based on the backscatter from the laser, you can see what kind of particulate smoke's contained inside of it. And I see you have some older cell phones here is that because in some of the markets you're in those are kind of the phones you'd expect them to have exactly yeah these are they're just kind of laying around we've got them all over the place but um, we have a ton of different phones that were purchased in different marketplaces in India and Africa and and they're definitely catching up I mean that's that's part of our job here is to try to make sure that the stoves not only can charge the phones today but can charge phones you know a year or two three years down the, the road as they continue to get more technology and are more power hungry, just like the, the smartphones in, in this country. So that's where we do all the burn testing. And then over here, we didn't get a whole lot of time to talk about it. It's been, it's been out of commission for a couple of weeks um, because we're sort of moved on from that stage in our development process. But this thing we affectionately call the wind tunnel and it's not much to look at, but underneath here, we can, can, we can test all the individual components of the power pack, the thing that makes the electron, the thing that makes the electricity. Sorry, um, and it's it's really cool because these products, um, there's so much synergy between the the way that, that they were laid out. And you know, Alec, our co-founder here, can probably take credit for most of that. He and Jonathan, but um, the fan is not only 
providing the air that makes the fire burn efficiently and cleanly, it's also cooling the cold side of our electricity generator. And so in order to, in order to, to generate electricity, we need to get our hot side really hot, hot side of the generator and the cold side really cold. And so the fan provides that, that ambient air to be able to cool off the cold side. Um, and this, this fixture here allows us to find the right balance points because you could imagine just flowing a lot of air over the, the TEG might generate uh, a lot of power, but you've taken power in order to do that. You've, you've put power into the fan to do that. And so there, there are actually places where you can find the optimum in terms of where the fan wants to operate, the optimum in terms of the air the fire wants to, to have good clean combustion, and the air that the, the thermoelectric generator wants to stay cool and generate peak electronic electricity. Um, and this, this fixture allows us to kind of identify where those, those points intersect. The sweet spot of... Find the sweet spot. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then meanwhile, sort of on the workbenches and stuff, it's just you guys are kind of continually prototyping and yeah, trying I mean, out new is, products. This is build. a lab, but it's yeah. also a shop. And it's, yeah. it's really our prototyping shop. And we work with the, the suppliers in our factories in China to, to get parts made. But we can do a lot of things here yeah. really quickly and do rapid iteration. We can build really nice looking models that, that look representative of the product. And we can build things that that work just like the product and does the uh, machete up on the wall there get much use oh yeah, yeah we got, <laughs> so we got the big the big machete is from uganda this really scary cleaver looking thing is from india um, and then we've got a few really fun ways to split wood if it's not split well enough we've got this sort of gravity um, oh, guillotine awesome. of yeah. sorts you can slam down on the wood and split it and then this foot operated splitter which operates kind of the same way as a big hydraulic splitter that they use to, to cut the wood in the first place. Awesome. Yeah. I don't know how many of our readers have those tools in their workshop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>I'm sure you guys both had the experience of like, I always liked going into like the camping aisle in the Walmart growing up because everything's clever. Um, do you think like being a bunch of people who are into camping, um, does that, are you guys more ingenious, like <laughs> finding these, finding solutions to things? Um, I think camping problems are really fun problems to solve. And I mean, maybe I should say off grid problems generally. Um, but you know, for camping, there's a lot of requirements. Um, these things have to be small, they have to be durable, they have to be lightweight. Um, and um, I do think oftentimes camping customers are, are a little more um, gear educated than an average consumer, and mm -hmm. so they really care about the features, which challenges us to do an amazing job for them. There's a tendency to like, geek out, I feel yeah. like, over like, uh, small. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Totally. I mean, as a kid growing up, um, I went to my local EMS um, which is a camping gear store, I would say three days a week after school. <laughs> it's like going to the record store, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. The record store for me was the EMS. <laughs> and I would, like, you know, thumb through all the carabiners and climbing cams yeah. and, like, test the zippers on all the parkas and yeah. look at the new way of seam welding a material. And um, I do think it's it's a fun... It's a very fun industry that really values innovation, and that's that makes it a, a, a really fun customer to work for. You know, to to that, and, and thinking about like your guys' office, like right next to your burn lab, you have an electronics lab where you're kind of developing solar energy, and then you know you're kind of you're, you're creating your own grid there. So I mean, 
And maybe maybe you can walk us through a little bit more of the sort of the wider product line of and everything you guys are involving sure. um, at BioLite. Yeah. So um, so at BioLite, our our products are are segmented into three main categories: cook, charge, and light. Um, obviously, cooking is is you know where the company got started. Mm -hmm. um, uh, although the stoves also provided charge, mm -hmm. um, and and I think the way we've sort of thought about this is if, if you were in an off-grid environment, let's say you're camping, um, an interesting place to look is where do you um, where do you feel protective of resources, right? And so if you go out camping, you spend a lot of time thinking about, well, I don't want to run my stove too long because I want to be able to make oatmeal tomorrow morning, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a scarcity you know, issue identified there. And then I don't want to keep my headlamp or my lantern on too long because I want to make sure I've got four more nights on this trip and mm -hmm. that that keeps running and you know I keep my phone on airplane mode but I'm using it for my GPS and um, you know for an emergency call if I needed it and as a camera and um, and so I think it's you know oftentimes we look at these places where people are really rationing their energy as the opportunity um, to open that up and say look the energy is all around us like we're gonna give you a better set of tools to use that in an abundant um, um, and more open way, and so so that's that's why we've picked these three these three categories. Um, and so um, our lantern line um, is anchored in a set of um, rechargeable LED lanterns that can also share their internal power as battery packs. Because how annoying is it when um, uh, you know your phone's dead, but your flashlight is fine, and you know there's energy in your backpack, <laughs> yeah. but it's not in the place you need it, and yeah. so. You know, the lighting line is really built around this idea of shareable energy. Um, the core lanterns also share their energy to very inexpensive string lights that can borrow from the infrastructure of the lantern to mm -hmm. create an environment of light as opposed to just a point source of light. Um, and those are cool, too. I mean, just like stringing those up, you kind of create your campsite into like a little homey. Yeah. Little yeah, we area, think a yeah. lot about trying to like create home beyond the grid. Yeah. Um, which is fun because you kind of get to play Edison for a, a whole <laughs> uh, a whole environment that hasn't had a lot of thought to um, you know a lot of thought given to how energy is is mm -hmm. used and distributed. Mm -hmm. um, and then lastly, um, uh, we know that not everyone wants to uh, burn wood to charge their phone and light, and so um, started to create a complementary set of options um, in in solar panels. Uh, solar obviously is a very well-developed technology. It's been around for a long time, and especially with cost reductions over the last five years, um, has has started to become a much more viable option, both um, connected to the grid and disconnected to the grid. Um, what we found with solar was that people weren't using it very well in portable context, right? So you get these small panels, mm -hmm. and um, you know if your panel is twenty degrees off of directly pointed at the sun, you're probably getting 25 or 30% less energy than you should. And so um, what we wanted to do with solar was to make it usable, to make it work for people in the practical way that it was getting applied. And so we use you know, the, the best available monocrystal and solar panels, but we attach to them um, a, a feature we call the sundial, which is a very simple analog Thing that casts a shadow, so you know exactly oh, you need to point it. when your solar panels pointed in the right place. <laughs> right, like so, who knew yeah. you needed that? Yeah, a, yeah, right. So simple solution. So for too. a five cent feature that involves no electronics, we just gave you thirty percent better efficiency <laughs> on your panel, and you know it, it comes with a very simple kickstand that. So instead of you know trying to stuff your Nalgene bottle under your solar panel and not getting the right angle, we give you a very simple way to prop it up and. 
Um, and so not everything requires um, you know, a rocket scientist here. There really are some practical user-centered opportunities in energy um, that, that, that just require a better understanding of how people are interacting and how we can improve those interactions. Mm-hmm. Can I go back to, I'm just really fascinated by, uh, so you, you talked about how you guys didn't even know about sort of this emerging market until you went to this uh, conference. And I'm curious, because a lot of what you're talking about, like this philosophy that energy should be usable sort of wherever it is, um, like the examples you were giving about using your headlamp or, or your GPS or whatever, those are all sort of in the camping scenario. But this philosophy obviously is like very useful at some place like East Africa where resources are scarce. So once you realized that market was out there, I'm just curious how much of your product development was driven sort of by understanding things about how the emerging market works mm-hmm. and, and how much is driven by like this camping market that you started in. How do they like feed back into each other? Sure. Um, so from 2006 to 2009, we worked on BioLite as a night and weekend project while, while working at our design firm called Smart Design. I think the underlying philosophy of an interest in energy resource and an, and an interest in sustainability and sort of what is our role as designers and as consumers in, in a sustainable world, I think that's, that's always been a background issue for both of us. And so, so in 2008, you know, it really became clear to me that this was an interesting opportunity, but I did not know anything about, you know, I'd been to India once, I'd never been to Africa. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, to, to think that we can design for that customer without knowing that customer, I think would have um, been a real misconception. And so in 2009, I quit my job and joined a social enterprise incubator in India. Um, and spent the better part of 2010 uh, learning the rural markets. It was uh, um, there were 25 other social entrepreneurs in this um, incubator. Um, I was the only non-Indian uh, national hmm. in the incubator, <laughs> and um, really got to meet a bunch of other amazing entrepreneurs who were working very intimately in the rural markets. Um, not all of them were making. Um, in fact, uh, only one of the others was making energy products, but. Um, a couple of them were rural distributors, right? Because it's one thing to create a technology. It's another thing to actually deliver it to the last mile yeah. in a place where, you know, REI and Amazon yeah. don't exist. Yeah. Um, um, so I learned a lot about uh, how, how products are moving to these last mile customers. Um, uh, other entrepreneurs in this group um, were working on financing, and, and this was really... Um, an important period in the growth of microfinance, so essentially tiny loans to low-income customers to help them improve their businesses or purchase critical um, appliances or send their kids to school. Um, and, um, and most importantly, I got to spend a lot of time with rural customers learning more about how they cook, where they get their fuel, what kinds of food they're making, um, uh, how much they're paying for fuel right now in um, in developing co- countries, uh, oftentimes off-grid customers spend upwards of 30% of their income purchasing rudimentary fuels. Um, so that's either charcoal or wood for cooking, um, kerosene for lighting. They're paying a guy at a kiosk down the road 25 cents a time to charge their mobile phone. So they're spending a lot mm. of money mm-hmm. on inconvenient, crappy energy. And so um, over the last two years, we have sold um, about 20,000 home stoves um, to uh, rural end users across India, Kenya, and Uganda. I, I received an email yesterday from uh, our Uganda country manager, and I, I gotta 
get the quote right, but essentially they were visiting um, a rural sales network that we're working with in Uganda, and um, the the customers said said to him, um, "You're helping turn our village into a city," hmm. and hmm. it's not that um, it's not that the the village was growing, but that this idea of modernity really had really was anchored in access to energy mm-hmm. and that aspirational quality and that sense of participation in the progress of the world was so palpable for these customers who were starting to have access to, you know, advanced combustion, easier charging for their mobile phones, light at home that isn't, you know, crummy kerosene candles. Um, and so I, I think I think we're starting to have impact. Um, and we've got a really long way to go. So that's our show. How Your World Works is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jesse Wright Mendoza. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley, Nandy Bowers from Panoply, and Popular Mechanics editor-in-chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And don't forget to check out our sister show, The Most Useful Podcast Ever. If you want to read more about BioLite and their camp stoves, check out our website, popularmechanics.com. And while you're there, don't forget that you can subscribe to the print and digital editions of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 for one year. I'm Kevin Dupsick. Thanks for listening.